If you uh, have a copy of the Bible, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, uh, this is printed for you in the bulletin. We have a uh, long reading tonight. Sometimes we do, especially on Sunday nights, especially as we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis. We've had some longer readings, and tonight's one of them. So I would encourage you to settle in, kind of find a comfortable uh, place in your seat. Make sure you got your reading glasses, and um, we'll read together. This is a beautiful story, uh, one that I think you'll hear some things that are familiar in, even though it's not as often talked about, this chapter. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, or to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Y'all, y'all, have y'all heard this before? <laughs> For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. So Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for we are much mightier, you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So, they, so he called the name of the water Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over that one. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. 
and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, or Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcal, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water, and they called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Okay. Have you ever watched a sequel <laughs> to a movie? I know you have. Sequels are actually very popular uh, they're actually more popular than you would think they are because they, you would think they would be because typically sequels are basically just a repetition of what came before. Let's be honest. Uh, most sequels rehash the same characters, same basic plot lines. There's hardly anything new in them most of the time, and yet they consistently make tons of money. And so people consistently continue to make them and create them. Uh, you would be excused, I think. We would be excused if we read this and thought... Moses trying to give us a sequel of Abraham. He's just trying to rehash the same stuff. But the difference is this. It's a big difference. Moses is not doing this because he just wants you to come back for the same old story. He's doing it because, well, it actually happened in the same ways that it happened to Abraham. This is a great lesson being highlighted here that people don't change too much, especially within the span of a generation. Um, as you know, we used to say, or we, people still say, it's a cliche, the apple don't fall far from the tree. Uh, and that's not very encouraging sometimes to think that way, that, that we just become like our parents and they like their parents and everything just kind of continues to be the same. And yet in the story, there are a few wonderful encouragements. And those are the ones I want to highlight tonight. Things are the same, but there's a few things different. And those few things that are different are important. And even though things are the same, there's a few things different. God has not changed a bit. And for God not to change a bit, that's good. I mean, for us not to be able to change from generation to generation, bad. For God not to change, exactly what we need, okay? So four things tonight. This is ambition. Four things, if you'll look at it. God's promise in a famine. God's patience in a scheme, God's provision in a conflict, and God's purpose in life. All right? I don't always alliterate, but when I do, I get carried away. All right, first of all, God's promise in a famine, verses 1 to 5. Uh, even there in verse 1, you see it. Moses knows this is just a repetition of what happened before. He says there was a famine in the land besides the one that happened in the days of Abraham, uh, his father. Uh, this is the same thing. 
Abraham was called by God to go to the promised land. We all know this. But when he got there, conditions were less than perfect. Not long after he arrived, a famine happened. But do you remember what Abraham did when the famine happened? This is a hard question. Kind of Bible trivia. But what did Abraham do when he experienced the famine in the land of Canaan? Went to Egypt. Hey, there you go. Ten points for Alex. He went to Egypt uh, immediately. And when he got to Egypt, he ran into trouble. That's where he did his scheme of, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And Pharaoh had plagues come upon him because he had actually taken Sarah into his harem uh, you know, of sorts. It became a major disaster because he went to the land where God told him to go. But because of a famine, he left. Well, here, the same thing happens to Isaac. He's in the land, a famine comes, and yet, notice, he does not go to Egypt but stays in the land because God tells him to. Do you see that, verse 2? The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Don't repeat the mistake of your father. Instead, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. And in that context, he gives him this sort of rehashing of the great Abrahamic promise there in verses 3 through 5, you know, that I'm going to bless you with children, I'm going to bless you with the land, and in you all the families of the earth are going to one day be blessed. And guess what? We see it. Isaac actually does what God says. He doesn't dart and run. He stays put. He says, you know, God promised me this land and God's going to give it to me, famine or no famine. Here I am. Here I'm going to stay. Progress. (laughs) Right? Progress in the covenant family. Um, So it, it is true that the same thing happens that happened to Abraham, but it's not true that all the same mistakes get repeated. Because here Isaac takes one of the mistakes of his father and he learns from it. And in obedience to God's command, he stays when his father disobeyed God's command and went. Wow. There's a a lot, I think, that we could make out of this. Um, Number one, I mean, just look at how similar the promise is to Abraham. It shows you that, you know, the promise to Isaac is the same as the promise to Abraham. God's promises, God's word doesn't change as it passes down the generations. Um, You know, the same God that spoke to Abraham spoke to Isaac. And here's the beautiful thing. The same God that spoke to Isaac speaks to us. The same word, the same promises, the same commandments, the same covenant. Uh, just, it never changes because God doesn't change. And yet, depending on how we benefit from those who've gone before us, we have the opportunity of being more faithful if we'll listen to the lessons that have gone before us than they were before us. Again, This highlights a very important thing that we often just completely ignore as Christians today. We almost always think about our relationship with God as an individual thing or as a single generational thing, as if every new generation just has to relearn Jesus all over again. And yet the Bible presents us with a picture of a passing on, of a generational faith unfolding. And the people that receive that faith down the line can actually go further with God than the people who came before because they take the torch from where they were handed it when their parents and their grandparents handed it off. There is the possibility of progress and advance 
in faithfulness to God when we take seriously this idea of a generational faith, right? Uh, Isaac is obviously picking up on this. Uh, Isaac is a special man, by the way. Um, So Jacob follows him, and Jacob, we already previewed this last week, he's a swindler, he's a cheater, he's going to scheme all the time. But Isaac is almost like this very steady, faithful person in between Abraham and Jacob. He's a great example, I think, of what it is to receive something that's passed down from you and to preserve it and yet to apply it in a fresh way to your new situation. Uh, He experiences a famine. It's a new situation. Yes, his dad had experienced it, but he hadn't experienced it. Remember, Isaac wasn't even born when the famine came. He did not experience this. And yet he takes the same faith that Abraham had passed to him and he applies it even better than Abraham did to a new situation. Uh, Do you think about that? Parents, grandparents, when you're thinking about teaching and instructing and passing the faith on to your kids, that you're, you're actually possibly contributing to them going further with the Lord than you ever did or than you ever will. And, and part of the way maybe you can learn that is by looking at yourself. Uh, how much have you benefited because you received the faith after many generations that came before you? What benefits have you gotten because Jesus came to you after 2,000 years of history in the faith, right? I mean, think about it. Let's let's, let's talk out loud a little bit. What are some of the ways that we benefit because the faith is old? The Bible, right? This whole thing wouldn't be here. I mean, in fact, the first Christians didn't have this. They had part of it. They had the Old Testament, but they didn't have the New. They only had pieces of it as it was being written. Abraham had none of it. What else? A lot of examples. Examples Examples both good and bad, actually. You can learn a lot of things about what not to do, but you can learn an equal, maybe greater number of things of what to do from church history. In fact... um, I think this is a good thing. Uh, One of the ways that in in the PCA, in our Presbyterian Church in America, that pastors are examined, we have to take a test in church history before we get ordained. And and I think that's a good thing because there's so much as a church leader that you can learn from the mistakes and the positive examples of leadership in the past that if you don't know them, you run the risk of just mindlessly repeating them. And so... Um, you know, I'm one of the ones now that gives the test, and, and I, I like to encourage the people that are taking it, take this part seriously. I know it might not seem like it's as important as the Bible, which in a way it's not, and it doesn't seem as important as the confession of faith and the, the theology that we believe, but it is sneaky important <laughs> to be able to understand the, the grave mistakes that have been made in church history, and there have been some whoppers, y'all, some real whoppers that uh, sadly you kind of see people continuing to repeat. Maybe because they don't know them. But yet if we thought about the faith more generationally, we might pick up on it a little bit better. Here's an example. Do you ever tell histories of the Christian past to your children? Do you ever tell stories of the Christian past to your children? Not many people do that, maybe. Um, and, And yeah, you tell Bible stories, and that's where you should start, obviously, much more important to tell Bible stories than other stories, but 
Don't, I would encourage you not to stop there. Uh, there are some wonderful stories of the great church fathers, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine, Jerome, Bernard of Clairvaux, John Calvin, Martin Luther, right? John Wesley, uh, all these kinds of people. There's many stories that you could tell that would help your kids under, you know, get, come to understand, help you understand. I received this way down the line, and I'm benefiting from it. I have the opportunity to be more faithful if I'll listen uh, than the people who went before me. But if we don't listen, and if we don't apply it to our generation, then we probably won't be any more faithful. And we see that in the next story in this chapter, as Isaac just falls right into repeating the exact same flaw that his father committed. And so the second thing is God's patience in a scheme. Uh, Isaac in verse 6 just falls into the script laid down by his father. He's with Abimelech, which, by the way, is, I think, actually the same king that Abraham lied to the second time. Remember, Abraham lied to Pharaoh first, then he lied to Abimelech. Some scholars say this is a different Abimelech. I think it's the same one Um, because he lives in the same place. Um, I don't see any reason timing-wise for it to be a different one. Um, He acts in the same way. He responds to Isaac's deception in the same way that he had responded to Abraham's. Remember, he was just completely floored by it. How dare, I mean, how in the world can you play this trick on us? You may have caused us to sin. So it seems like the same Abimelech to me. I don't think there were too many morally upstanding kings floating around in Canaan in those days. And so given the fact that Abimelech shows a little bit of moral backbone, it's probably the same Abimelech. And Isaac does the same exact thing, except this time it works better. Uh, It's a little different because it says uh, there in um, verse 8, he had lived there a long time under the pretense that she was his sister. Uh, We don't don't know how long, but it was a long time when, when they thought these were sisters. And yet nobody touched her. Interesting, right? Another example of how sometimes pagans outshine believers by God's grace. Sometimes. And sometimes God allows that to humble the believer. So here you have a believer who thinks, I can't trust these people, so I'm going to lie. And yet those people act more morally than he does. Because in lying, he puts his wife at risk to save his own skin, just like his father had done. And yet no one touches her that whole time, even though it was a long time. And they get caught, it says, whenever the king looks out the window and sees Isaac laughing with Rebekah. Now, in Hebrew, to laugh with is a euphemism. And it could be used here as a euphemism for romantic encounters. All right, I'll put it that way. Um, some type of romantic encounter, likely, probably not just literally laughing, right? Uh, there's probably some type of romantic encounter going on that the king sees that he realizes, wait a minute, that's not your sister? Or else maybe you Hebrews have bigger problems than we thought, right? Um, and so he confronts him, and, and the same thing happens that happened with, with Abraham. Uh, this man shows a great deal of moral uh, fiber when he says, you could have brought guilt on us, and so therefore, whoever touches this man or his wife, verse 11, 
shall surely be put to death. What do you have here again? God has never changed. Just like he did with Abraham, he protected the covenant family even when Abraham did his best to destroy it. Here he protects the covenant family even when Isaac does his best to destroy it. Make no mistake about it. These schemes could have destroyed the family. How? He could have been killed. That's the end of the line at that point, right? No more, no more Abrahamic family. What else? The lineage. She could have been taken, right? And she now would become somebody else's wife. And so no longer do you have the promise to Isaac through Rebecca to Jacob and, and through Jacob. Instead, what you have is, well, a family completely divided and part of it belongs now to the Philistines of all people, right? This could have torpedoed the entire operation. And yet here you have a God of a tremendous patience. God bears with us and bears with us and bears with us. When we scheme, when we sin, it's not an excuse for our sin or scheming, but it's a comfort to know that even in our sinning and scheming, God is still there, patiently using it to work out his purpose in our lives to bring us uh, to a place of repentance, uh, but at the very least to preserve his covenant promise so they don't get uh, undone. Um, Isn't that amazing to think about? Uh, God, in the midst of our weakness... In the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our fears and hesitations, all of which have eaten Isaac up here, God is still there, and God is working even through a pagan king to preserve his holy family and his holy promise and covenant. Wow. How has God been patient with you? I know he's been awful patient with me. Right? Very, very patient through, through my life. Um, he, he called me when I was young, and so he had to deal with me through my teenage years. <laughs> God did. You know? And I'm, that took a lot of patience on God. And he has to deal with me still, which takes a lot of patience on God's part. And yet, what we can always depend on as we believe the faith and pass it on is God never changes. So God's commitment to his covenant promise doesn't vary whether we're weak or strong. We think opposite of that. We think God's plan is happening when I'm strong. When I'm strong, that's when I'm right. We even say it sometimes. I'm right in line with the will of God. And that is in a sense true. When you obey God, you're right in line with his will, of course. But in the ultimate sense, aren't you always in line with the will of God in the sense that he's keeping you, he's preserving you, he's helping you if you're his, right? If you belong to him, he's not going to let you go. It's an amazing thing to think about. One that I'm sure caused Isaac to marvel as he walked away, just like his dad had done. He walked away thinking, phew, that was a close one. I can't believe you did that, God. In fact, in verse 12, the very thing that happens next is what? Look at verse 12. He becomes rich, which is, once again, a repetition of what happened to Abraham. 
Abraham was in Egypt. He lied. Plagues came on Pharaoh. But Abraham walked out of Egypt wealthy, very wealthy. What an incredibly patient God. That he would continue to bless Isaac even though Isaac had sinned so greatly against his wife and so greatly against God. And by the way, this also was a blessing to Rebekah. It was the same with Sarah. Remember uh, God had said, for Sarah's sake, I'm going to, or, or Pharaoh had said, for Sarah's sake, I'm going to give you this money, right? Um, this is sort of like a repayment to Sarah for what we did to her. And here, same thing. It's as if God is watching out for Rebecca and compensating her for the damages that could have been done because of Isaac's recklessness to his family and to his spouse. Uh, he walked away mightier than the Philistines, verse 16. Mightier than the Philistines, even though at times the Philistines seemed more moral than him. Incredible. That's why some, it's good to remember that the, the grace of God in the Bible is amazing, as the song says. Amazing. I mean, it should amaze us the way that God consistently works in our lives. Uh, third section of the story is God's provision in the middle of conflict. Verse 12 to 33. And this is again a repetition of, of uh, Abraham's life in a way. Um, notice in verse 18, Isaac dug again the wells of water that Abraham dug. And it says he even named them the same names that his father had given them. So it's like you know, Isaac's once again just repeating the same thing as uh, father had done, he digs the same wells, names them the same names, except this time the wells become a point of contention and the Philistines start to battle with Israel in the land. Um, uh, probably uh, this would have been very comforting you know, to the early generations that read this. Remember the first people to read this written down were those that received it from Moses. Uh, these were people who were the Israelites who were about to go into the promised land. Uh, who in the promised land was about to give them the most trouble of all the people ever? The Philistines. It was going to plague them for generations and generations. And so here's an example, just maybe to comfort them, that even your fathers, even the patriarchs had, had the same conflict, and yet God had provided for them in the midst of their conflict. Uh, look at the story. What do the Philistines do to Isaac that is so frustrating. And it is quite frustrating. What, what do they do? Verses uh, 12 to 33, big section, but what, what do they do in there? Yeah, so every time he would dig a well to get water for his flocks. Remember, he was very rich. It says he had many flocks and herds and servants. He had a lot of people to water, you know, a lot of things to water. Uh, every time he would dig a well, they'd fill it back in. He'd go to another place, dig a well, and psh, they'd fill it back in. Finally, you know, verse 22, he finds a place where he digs a well, and he calls it Rehoboth, which means uh, in Hebrew, space, room. <laughs> Finally, I found a space where the Philistines aren't like a mosquito that I'm having to bat off constantly. Amazing. Uh, by the way, there, there's a city in Maryland named Rehoboth, um, and it was named after this story uh, when the, some of the early settlers of um, 
was it? Yeah, Maryland. Yeah, some of the early settlers of Maryland came there. They named it this based on here, um, I guess, because they found peace there. They didn't have conflicts with maybe the Native Americans that many of their neighbors had had, and so they called it Rehoboth. We have space. Uh, and actually, the first trivia, the first Presbyterian church ever built in the colonies was in Rehoboth, Maryland, and actually it's still there. The building is still there, and there's still a congregation that meets in it, although I cannot speak for its spiritual vitality. Uh, it is still a building, and folks still go there. That's what I can say. <laughs> um, amazing, isn't it? You know, how, how, again, thinking generationally about the faith and the way a lot of these things continue to be repeated even into our time and into our day. Um, conflict, I mean, think about... Isaac is still in a foreign land. The Philistines are the natives. He's not the native. They are filling up all his wells, which shows they don't want him to be there. He's always finding a way to get to a new place to dig a new well, much to their frustration. Um, How do people normally treat those who are hated by the majority? What's that? They're an obstacle. No, I mean you put obstacles. You put obstacles in their way. Yeah, yeah. You usually—it's very hard, actually. I mean, did you ever try this in school to befriend the person that got bullied and picked on? That's a hard. I mean, that takes some courage, even though it shouldn't be a a thing that you would not. You should do it. It still, as a kid, takes a lot of courage because you know what. If you're getting over there with that guy or girl that's getting picked on, boom, you're right there with them now. You're lumped with them. And so you've got to think about how lonely Isaac feels and yet notice what God does to Isaac. He befriends the one being bullied in a very public way. Verse 23, he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord, what? Appeared. That doesn't happen very often. God doesn't always appear in the Bible. A lot of times he communicates in other ways. Here he appears. Something that could be seen in some form or fashion. That same night, the night that he dug the well called Rehoboth, And God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not for what? I am with you. Nobody else is with Isaac. He's the stench of the land, apparently. And yet God says, that's my guy. I will appear with him. I am with him. Isaac builds an altar there to the Lord and calls on the name of the Lord. So Isaac also publicly owns God. It's like together they are owning each other publicly in front of everybody. Reminds me of uh, Psalm 23 again where it says that God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Uh, That God's love endures everlastingly even when... Uh, We do wrong, that's what we saw in the last story, when we scheme and sin, God is with us, but also when others wrong us, God is with us. When folks sin against us, 
God is not afraid to stand with us. God is not afraid to be named with us. He's not afraid to say, I'm with you, and, and even appear very publicly, going on record. I am with Isaac, and Isaac is with me. Does that encourage you like it does me? That encourages me that God is willing to be with me even when no one else is in Christ. That's pretty encouraging. Another psalm says, this is David, even my father and mother may forsake me, but God, you won't forsake me. That's fairly rare for a father and mother to forsake a, per, a child. I mean, it does happen. It's sad, but it's pretty rare in, in the grand scheme. But David said, even if that happens, God won't. God stands publicly with his people. He stands with them when they're high in position. He stands with them when they're low and have no position. He stands with them when they're rich. He stands with them when they're poor. He stands with them... When they sin, he sins when they're sinned against. And he's always working the purposes of his love out into their lives, into our life. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies and anoints our head with oil. As if to say, he's mine. She's mine. Don't touch him. And if you do, you'll have to contend with me. And you might think... He's an outcast. You might think he's someone that needs to just get out of your land, but I am bestowing my richest blessings on him. I mean, imagine the, the transformation from verse 1 of chapter 26 to verse 25. I mean, just the reversal. I mean, first there's this famine, and then... There's this scheme that goes wrong and then suddenly there's this conflict with the Philistines that drags on and on and then finally God is publicly standing with his man, publicly standing with his family. Wow. I'm going to pause for thoughts before we go to the last one. Any thoughts y'all got? Love to hear them. That's right. And, um, you know, this is an intrusion into the lives of people where they don't want God mm -hmm. into their lives at all. Yeah. And they're doing everything possible to get rid of them early yep. on. Yes. You know, because they, they see, I think they see what's going on mm -hmm. more than what the Bible is really telling us. Yeah. To stop that, yeah, we we yeah they they see. I mean, it even says there, you know, they they noticed verse sixteen that God was blessing Isaac and the family. I mean, that they noticed something, and they didn't like it. You're you're right, Mike. I mean, they were they were seen as intruders into the land of Canaan, no doubt about it. And yet God stood with the intruder. Because all the land is God's. Right? The Philistines can't claim that. 
God made it. Was not. Nope. Was not performance based at all. And it was also not status based, right? It was not status based. It was not performance based. It was not popular opinion based. Uh, God does not put his finger to his tongue and feel the winds to see how to think about you and me. (laughs) He's got his own idea and it doesn't matter. He's going to go with it which I think is an extremely comforting thing, that the love of God endures. Remember I said, this story is about many things are the same, some things are different, but God never changes, right? Many things are just repeated, some things are different, but God never changes, and that's the thing that holds this family. And it's the thing that will hold your family, and the thing that will hold your, your own self uh, before the Lord. Uh, Have you ever felt God preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies before? Maybe not. I mean, you know, I had to go think on that one, maybe. Maybe that has never happened to you, or maybe you can't recall a time, but um, I've certainly felt that a few times, that that God defended me or upheld me when, when few did. It's rarely happened in my life, but it has happened at times. Wonderful. All right, last thing. God's purpose in life. God's purpose in life. Um, 34, 35, last two verses. Enter Esau. Doom, 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 right? Enter the, we might say, the black sheep, right? The one we learned about last week. God said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I've hated. Um, he chose Jacob for salvation, chose not to save Esau, although both boys are sinners, just like Isaac, just like Abraham. Uh, God chooses to save some sinners and chooses not to save others. Uh, and, I, and Esau is this way. But we also saw that Esau's non-salvation was not a result of God's forcing him to be a sinner. And this is the proof of that here, verses 34 to 35. This is kind of a uh, a response to some of y'all's questions that you had after last week's teaching on predestination. Because here you see that Esau himself makes the choices that keep God out of his life. And here's one of the main choices he makes. He chooses to marry two women who do not worship God or have anything to do with God and aren't going to have anything to do with God and he doesn't care And we know that because it says, this marriage made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. He married Judith the Hittite and Basemuth the Hittite. Two pagan women from pagan families. Uh, Cementing, really, his place outside of the covenant family and in the pagan world. And so God's purposes here are getting worked out in two different ways. You know, for those who are saved, God's purposes get worked out by grace. Okay? Uh, it's not that, nobody can boast, right? That it's not that Isaac is saved and Abraham was saved and Jacob is saved because they did something that made them stand out. Or they were just a little bit better than Esau. Actually, that's not true. It's not true. There's another story coming where Esau actually looks... Better than Jacob, morally speaking, actually, in a way. 
It's not because of anything good in them, but it's because God is every step of the way applying grace, applying mercy, applying patience, changing their heart, not letting them keep going in their stubborn way, stopping them in their tracks, creating blockades in front of them so they can't go down bad paths. I mean, this is God's grace chasing them down. Whereas with Esau, what you see is not God chasing them into sin or chasing them into hell. God doesn't do that with anybody. That there will not be anybody who says, I, w- I wanted to go to heaven and God sent me to hell. Now, there will be people who think they thought they wanted to go to heaven. Right? Of course, who will not go to heaven. But there will be no one who genuinely wants to be with God in heaven who will not go to heaven. <laughs> because God's grace is what makes us want to be with God in heaven. It's being left to ourself that keeps us in the position of not wanting to be with God in heaven because God is the last thing we want to be with. He's the last person we want to be around. And you see that with Esau. God is not forcing Esau to stay evil. God is simply allowing Esau to do what Esau freely chooses to do. And he's giving Esau over to the consequences of his actions to show what the consequences of sin are in everybody's life but for the grace of God. Y'all have heard that phrase, also a cliche, but for the grace of God, go I. That's a true phrase. I know it's a cliche, but it's true. Um, Please, I mean, none of us as Christians should think, when we look at anybody in the world, we should not think, I could never be that. I could never do that. You should never think that. Because, but for the grace of God, you could, right? And likely would, given the right circumstances, right? So we can't boast in stuff like that. Because often, God has kept us from doing things that had we had the opportunity, we would have done them. God just kept us from the opportunity. Well, that ain't nothing to boast about. Uh, Just because you haven't had the opportunity to do something bad doesn't mean, you know, you're all that credited with not doing the bad. You see? Esau is an example of what it's like when the the Bible uses this phrase, when God hands us over to our sin. When he hardens us in our sin, which is the same thing as to say when he allows us to harden ourselves. Esau at 40 years old, a grown man, the same year, by the way, that Isaac married Rebekah. He chose. Very... I mean, do you remember the ordeal that it was to get Rebecca for Isaac? What effort it took on the part of Isaac and everybody else? And Esau says, I'm just going to go down to the Hittites and find whoever I want to find. Because I don't care nothing about the promise. Remember, he sold it for a cup of soup. We believe... You know, I think in keeping with the Bible, in predestination. But we also believe that the same God who predestines the ends predestines the means. And so as a Christian, you have to be very careful that you're using the opportunities of grace that God has given you. <laughs> right? You can't just be like, well, God predestined me to heaven. doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to go there if he predestined me. No, that's not how it works. The God who predestines you to heaven predestines the way there. For you to walk in, right? By his grace, every step of the way. 
In the same way, you can't say, well, well, God may not have predestined me to heaven, so it doesn't matter what I do or don't do, I'm still going to hell. I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want. No. The choices that you make are not canceled out by the eternal plan of God. In fact, the choices that you make are established by the plan of God. Here we see it. God had a plan, but that plan gets worked out through the actions of human beings. Isaacs get worked out through the grace-given stumbling and fumbling, yet overall faithfulness of his life. Esau's gets worked out by just the continual going deeper into his own freely chosen sin. At the end of the day, no one can boast. The saved person can't boast that they're saved, and the unsaved person can never say, oh, well, I didn't get the opportunity, and... God was unfair with me. No, God actually just let you do what you wanted to do. All, every single day, every step of the way. Uh, the reason the Bible teaches this is not so that we would get caught in a maze of am I chosen or am I not chosen. Actually, there's only one way to know that you're chosen is that you believe in Jesus and you follow him. It's the only way to know. You can't figure it out by, figure, you, know, you know, through an eight ball or something. I mean, you, you have to... Follow the path that God says is the path for those who are saved by, by faith. Uh, but what this teaching is given for is not the maze of figuring out whether you're elect or not. It's given so that those who do believe can know they are kept by God because they were first chosen by God. And that God is working by his grace at every juncture of their life. Sin, weakness, being sinned against, everything that's happened to you has happened. And God is working his purpose of grace through those things, somehow, some way. And it's to wake up somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus to say, do you really want God to give you over to your own freely chosen path of life? Do you really think that's a good choice? Do you really think it's a good path? Look at Esau. It's not a good path. When we get to just keep doing what we want to do all the time, it is not freedom. It is super bad. And it actually ends in hell. It's a sad thing, but it does. Once again, contradicting our culture that says doing what you want to do is the essence of freedom. I say hogwash. Doing what you want to do is reprobation. It's damnation. Doing by grace what God wants you to do. Now, now we're talking about freedom. Now we're talking about freedom, okay? Great story. Much is the same. Little bit's different. God never changes. And that's where our hope is.